This morning we're going to look at Galatians 1, verses 10 to the end of the chapter, to verse 24. It is um, a record of Paul's further defense of his apostolic ministry, defense of the gospel before those trying to pervert the gospel, saying you needed Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus anything, is a perversion of the gospel, if we say it's necessary for salvation. And so the apostle, in defending himself, was set out a defense of his testimony for the defense of the gospel. We're going to look this morning at Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 to verse 24. I know that you're going to find it very helpful to have your own copies of Scripture open and reading along there with me. Before we do, let's go to the Lord, praying for his blessing on the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good, for you have given that good, everlasting gospel that is um, the gospel of our salvation, the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is that by which we are saved, that by which we are sanctified. Father, it is the gospel that we have as the greatest treasure and the greatest power the world has ever seen. You have transformed us by it, and so we pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word in the preaching of the gospel this morning, we pray that you would remove distractions, that you would make us attentive. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning, powerfully into our souls, that you would transform us, that you would free us from every misconception. If there are those that are unconverted here, Father, that there would be salvation and redemption, that you would take out the heart of stone and give the heart of flesh that new birth that is necessary for Redemption. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, literally flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Simon Peter, by the way, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think that we would all agree that there is nothing so unfitting as someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, living in a manner that reflects the denial of the gospel, the denial of what the gospel actually does in people, the denial of a transformed life. 
externally, how we carry ourselves, how we speak, how we dress, how we look, how we talk. There's nothing so unfitting as seeing someone that professes faith in Jesus Christ denying it in the life, in the way that they live. They may say they're a Christian, they may say they believe the gospel, they may say these things, but their life doesn't reflect it. And in that sense, they are doing great harm to the cause of the gospel. They're actually denying the very gospel, and they're, in a sense, before men saying, well, yeah, I believe this, but it really doesn't have the power that the Bible says it has because my life doesn't reflect that. And I think we would agree that there is nothing so encouraging as seeing a life transformed by the gospel and our own faith in Jesus Christ being bolstered and our understanding of the validity of the gospel being encouraged and enhanced, in a sense, by seeing the transformed lives of someone who was completely wicked and rebellious and and just completely anti-Christian, then having their lives transformed by the grace of God in the gospel and seeing what a testimony that is to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his work in them. Nothing as unfitting as a life unchanged, nothing as glorious as a transformed life. We read church history and we read about some of the greatest figures in church history. John Newton, the slave trader, a wicked, vile slave trader, being converted to Jesus, becoming a minister, writing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And you knew he saw. You don't have to know John Newton. We didn't have to see John Newton. We read in the pages of church history and in his hymns and in his sermons, and we we hear what he was like. John Bunyan saying he was a blasphemer, a wicked, cursing, vile, drunkard young man. God changing John Bunyan, making him the author of one of the greatest Christian books the world has ever seen, The Pilgrim's Progress. Story after story after story of men and women whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And I think we would all agree that none was so great as that of the Apostle Paul. None was so extreme as that of the Apostle Paul. He was a man who at the beginning of the New Testament church was murdering the people of Jesus. He was a man who was devoted to Judaism in all of its perverted, pharisaic form. He was a man that was deeply rooted in self-righteousness, thinking that God accepted him because he was a good person. A man that thought he was zealous for God because I don't do this and I don't do that and I'm a good person. And who hated everybody who said it's by faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. And who killed them and murdered them. And then he's converted. And he is magnificently transformed. And he becomes the foremost apostle to the Gentiles, the complete opposite thing of what he was. And he writes more than half of the New Testament. And he becomes the example of what a Christian ought to be after Jesus Christ. And you've heard all of this from me before. And Paul now has to bring that testimony forward in the defense of the gospel because Paul is being attacked. The gospel is being attacked. And in order for the gospel to be attacked, Paul is being attacked. In order for the false teachers, the Judaizers who came into the church, the Jewish Christians who said, yeah, you need Jesus plus circumcision, you need Jesus plus you need to keep the law to be justified and accepted. In order to do that, they had to undermine the apostle. They had to cut him off. They had to cut down his authority because Paul said, no, it's by faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. Faith alone. In Christ alone. In the finished work of Christ. That you add nothing to. That we take nothing away from. In Jesus and all that he is and all that he does. And the apostle Paul now has to defend his ministry. And you get a sense, you get a sense in the New Testament that Paul is not a man that likes to talk about himself. 
you get a sense that Paul is sort of reserved and reluctant to speak about himself. This is the Apostle Paul who says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul that says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, who now, in this entire chapter, has to defend his testimony of conversion, calling, actions, for the defense of the gospel. He began that last week we saw where he said his gospel was not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. That God had called him, had given him the gospel. He didn't learn it from men. He picks back up on that in verse 10. Um, and following verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is defending the heavenly origin of the gospel as he goes into his testimony. This morning we're going to see in that testimony and defense three things. First, how the testimony of the gospel is built on Paul's actions before conversion. How the testimony of the gospel is built on Paul's conversion experience and how the testimony of the gospel is built on Paul's actions after conversion. From verses 11 to 24, you really have before Paul's conversion, Paul's conversion, after Paul's conversion. That's the basic threefold division in the defense of the gospel. We'll notice Paul continues on to explain how he didn't learn the gospel from other men. He, he did hear a lot about the gospel. You might say, well, didn't he hear the gospel from Stephen? Certainly he heard about Jesus from Stephen. Certainly he heard after he was converted from Ananias, that Jesus had healed the sick, raised the dead, done all these mighty works and wonders. But what Paul is saying, I think, is Paul is saying no one taught him the intricacies of the gospel. Actually, what the gospel is, what actually happened on the cross, what actually happens in the resurrection, what, actually, what does the gospel actually mean? What does it mean in justification? What does it mean that you're accepted in Jesus Christ alone? What does it mean that he was born under the law? To keep the law for us. What does that mean? Paul says, I did not receive that from man, nor was I taught it, in verse 12, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There I think he's saying revelation from Jesus Christ. That Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus road, and he appears in a revelatory form to the apostle, and he calls him and he converts him, and then he continues training him. I actually think this is speculation, but I think when Paul goes to Arabia, Jesus is training Paul, that he is giving Paul visions. Paul speaks of seeing heavenly visions. You don't go seeking those things, but Paul had those things. Paul had was caught up to the third heavens, heard things unutterable, experienced all kinds of amazing things in which Jesus taught him the things that we read in our Bible. What you have in Paul's letters, Paul received from Jesus by vision and dream and revelation, and you have that same revelation. Open your Bible, read your Bible, and you will learn from Paul what Jesus Christ directly taught him. Now, you can say, well, there are lots of books out there. There are lots of spiritual gurus out there. There are lots of all kinds of people that say they've got the corner on spirituality. How do I know that, that Oprah's not right and Paul is? How do I know? I mean, Paul probably wouldn't be Book of the Month ever on Oprah. Um, how do I know that Oprah is not right and Paul's? How do I know that Muhammad's not right? Well, let me say this. Muhammad was one man who wrote one book. Paul was one man who wrote a book with a bunch of other men over 1,600 years that all agree with each other. And Paul's going to go up to those men, and they're all going to receive Paul, even though he's going to have to rebuke Peter for denying the gospel. And Peter's going to say, yeah, Paul wrote scripture, and it was true. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to receive it by faith. 
But the internal testimony shows there was no contradiction. Paul didn't make it up. His gospel harmonized with everybody else's gospel. He's going to say later, there's one gospel for Jew and Gentile. Same gospel, same Jesus, same God, same Lord. One God, one way. If you're a Muslim, you need Jesus Christ. You must repent. If you're an American, you need Jesus Christ. You must repent. That's what Paul's going to say. And Paul says that because that's the gospel that Jesus gave him. Because Jesus is the gospel. And the gospel comes from Jesus. Nobody gets to make it up. Nobody gets the corner on the gospel. But Paul's been entrusted with it. And he says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then notice what he does. He goes back to his history. Very skillful, Paul does, in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I think it's interesting that Paul first appeals to his persecuting zeal. He first goes to the fact that he was like the supreme persecutor of the church, that he gave all of his energy, all of his attention to trying to stomp out the gospel and Christians and to get rid of the gospel that now he is defending. And what he's saying is, I was zealous. I was, these Judaizers coming in here saying I'm a fake, these guys coming in here perverting things, they don't know Judaism. They don't know what it is to be zealous for Judaism. I know what it is to be zealous for Judaism. There was nobody as zealous as me. Paul will say in Philippians 3, I was Hebrew of Hebrews, born on the eighth day, Pharisee of Pharisees, regarding the law, perfect, blameless, perfect Pharisee. Nobody was better than me. I lived a much more scrupulous life than anybody you will ever know. Paul, as far as he was concerned, could have attained sinlessness, he thought, before he was converted. And he says, listen, you're coming in here with this nonsense, you're coming in here with this wicked poison, be very much it's like a father trying to defend his children against poison someone comes to care for your kid and they ask for water and instead they put a little cyanide in there, you would definitely be angry about that, you would definitely go to whatever length it is to make sure that your children were protected, that's what Paul's doing and he's doing it by going back before his conversion saying look, look what I was I was supreme Judaizer I was supreme Pharisee I thought I could keep the law. Paul's saying, look, do you, do you not remember what I was? And I was a zealous persecutor. And notice what Paul does. He does something very interesting. In verse 13, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, you may say, that doesn't mean much to me. That's an immensely important statement by Paul. Paul, the great Old Covenant Israelite Judaic Pharisee is calling the New Covenant Church the Church of God, the Assembly. That word assembly, ecclesia, comes out of the Old Testament, applied to Israel in the wilderness. They were the Church of God. Israel was the Church of God. And now this Jewish convert Paul is calling the New Testament Church that he tried to persecute and destroy the Church of God. He is putting that stamp. He's saying, you are the real people of God. You are the true Israel. You are the true assembly. You are the ones that belong to Jesus. That's a huge statement for Paul in his defense of the true gospel. He's saying, you are the true church, and I was persecuting the true church of God. And then notice what he says in verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my father's. I would love to meet Paul because I am a very type A, high-strung, intense individual. And I would like to meet Paul because Paul was a very high-strung, intense, all-or-nothing sort of individual. 
Paul went from full throttle zealous persecution to full throttle service for Jesus' kingdom. God entered into time and space and took a man who was the extreme and made him the extreme example. And that's beautiful. That's, think of the wisdom of God in this. Think about this. Who is the most unlikely person, the most unlikely person you could think of in your mind right now that you know that could become the greatest Christian you know? Think about that person. I want you to sit and think right now. Who is the most wicked, vile, filthy, rebellious, arrogant, maybe even physically violent person you know? And you would say, that person will never be the greatest Christian I know. And God says, oh yeah, watch. I'm going to take him and I'm going to turn him into the greatest individual the world has ever seen apart from my son, through the gospel of my son, transforming his life. And you, and you think about God and you think, wow, I really don't understand how God works. Because if I was God, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have done that. I doubt you would have done that. You would have picked the best person, the most gifted person. God picks the most extreme person to make him the greatest apostle. And Paul says, look, I was zealous. I was zealous for the traditions of my father. I was far more zealous than you. And then notice, let me say secondly, Paul now moves into his conversion account. And this is really the, the epicenter, the heart of Paul's defense. Notice how he introduces this in verse 15. Notice that Paul doesn't say, but when I decided to follow Jesus, I'm going to be careful with you. But notice Paul doesn't say, when I decided to follow Jesus, notice Paul doesn't say, when I came to myself and realized, what am I doing? I need to change my life. Notice that Paul doesn't say, when I cleaned up my act and got some counseling help and had a psychological experience of change. Paul says, when it pleased God. When it pleased God. Paul is now saying, my conversion and all true conversion, let me say this to you, All of you, whether converted young or old, whether you need conversion, true conversion is the work of God. When it pleased God, when it pleased God, when it pleased God, when it pleased God, when God wanted to save me, he did it. When God wanted to bring me to repentance, he did it. When God wanted to enter into my life and bring me from death to life in Jesus Christ, he did it. When God wants to save a sinner, he does it. And nothing stops God. And Paul says, and Paul says, He didn't decide to do it on the Damascus Road. What does he say? Notice what Paul says. Paul says, when he, it pleased God, who who set me apart before I was born. Who set me apart before I was born. Now, think what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I, the great persecutor of the church, the murderous, self-righteous, Pharisee, religious leader, I was set apart by God from my mother's womb, He ordained everything that I would do, and then he saved me on the Damascus Road. That's what Paul's saying. Like it or not, that's what Paul's saying. And like it or not, that's true of your life. And we want to learn to like that, because what that means is that nothing was a mistake. Nothing in your life was a mistake. Nothing that you've done, all the rebellion, all the wickedness, all the inward rebellion, the quiet wickedness, maybe you're a quietly rebellious person, all of that, all of the dark thoughts, the angry thoughts, the cooped up thoughts, the outward burst, the, the drugs, the alcohol, the abuse, all of that, God was sovereign over it. And if you're in Jesus Christ, it was all part of his plan. And he uses all of that. And he used all of it in Paul's life. And he's going to use all of it in your life. So that we don't have to look back and say, I wasted 50 years. Paul never, have you never marveled that Paul never says, why did I waste all these years? He never says that. He says, God set me apart from birth 
called me by his grace, revealed his son in me, and sent me to be the apostle of the Gentiles. And all of it was planned from eternity. And it was all God's plan in my life. And it was all because he wanted to do it. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. If you're a Christian, that ought to be one of the sweetest things falling on your soul. That, yes, I mourn over my sin. Yes, I hate what I was. Yes, I hate how I lived. Yes, I repent of that. I mourn over that. I never want to go. I'm ashamed of that. And yet, it was not for naught. God ordained all of that. There was a plan. There was a purpose. If we don't say that, if we don't say that, then we've got to live with some serious regrets paralyzed by what we've been, thinking that we somehow changed ourselves, picked ourselves up by the bootstraps, fixed ourselves. Paul says, no, look, the gospel I preach is the gospel that changed my life. It's the gospel that comes from God in eternity. It's the gospel that God planned and prepared for me before I was even born, set me apart to minister that gospel, called me by his grace, uses my past, gave me, now notice what he says, he says, called me by his grace. That's the whole point. The Judaizers were denying grace. They were saying, no, it's something you contribute to your salvation. Listen, we don't contribute anything. Nothing, 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 nothing. If you think you contribute anything to salvation, you have another gospel. Even your own faith and repentance. Let me say that. Your faith and repentance are not a contribution to the gospel. If you think my faith and repentance that God does require are in addition to the gospel, you may have another gospel. You may be trusting in yourself and what you're doing rather than in the Christ who has done it all. And Paul says, look, when it pleased God who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. This is the most magnificent way I think conversion is spoken of in the New Testament. When God who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. If you're a Christian... Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, lives in your heart. Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, indwells, inhabits, makes you and all of your you who you are. Jesus is united to you. He indwells you. The Bible says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of Jesus is revealed in us, that what happens at conversion is we who are full of darkness and corruption are filled with Jesus Christ and his light and the gospel. And Paul says in the most magnificent way, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me. Now, I think that has ramifications for how I look at you, how you look at me, how we look at each other. If you really believe that Jesus Christ has been revealed in your heart by God the Father through the Spirit, and if you believe your brothers and sisters have had that experience, then number one, you're going to want to hear the gospel all the time. And you're going to want to talk about the Jesus that dwells in you and has been revealed in you all the time. And you're going to want to love each other as those to whom Jesus Christ has been revealed in. And when we forget that, and we often do, we sort of revert back to our fleshly ways. Paul will go on and develop this in 2.20 when he says, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That Christ is in me. And I live by faith in him. And God revealed Jesus in Paul, in his, in his mind, in his heart, in his spirit, in his soul. Jesus flooding the will. Listen to this magnificent quote by William Still. When the supernatural ordination of Paul, his ordination called to be a minister, and subsequent calling lead on to a revelation far more wonderful 
although not as cataclysmic as the light on the Damascus Road, namely the Son of God within as a new, gracious, and powerful personality filling the infant Christian mind with new thoughts, purposes, and ways of living, what need has the man of human approbation? What need do you need for anybody to say, your gospel is not true? If you have Christ within you, and then... He'll say, this is the greatest revelation of all, that Christ as a human babe and a carpenter, dying a shameful death and rising to highest heaven to arrest men in a blaze of celestial glory should now be found in man's mind, working his own pattern of thoughts and directing the whole personality, body and soul, to new endless ends. That is beyond all. That is beyond all. Listen, be astonished. Be astonished. If you're a Christian... Jesus Christ has flooded you with his glory, just like he did Paul. And that's a defense of the gospel for people that don't believe. If your soul has been flooded with the emanating glory of Jesus, how will that not emanate out the glory of Christ in our actions? How will that not be evident to all? It was evident in the life of Paul. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, I didn't change myself. The glory of Jesus emanating in me changed me, propelled me, took me out, made me who I am. And then notice, what Paul says. Now, thirdly, the gospel defended by his actions after his conversion. Um, there are many people who experience something of a conversion experience, and then five years, ten years, fifteen years down the road, we've talked about them. Many of us have talked about these people. We know them. May God never let it be us. They walk away from Christ. They go right back to the world. They become Buddhists. They become Hindus. They become agnostics. And they perish because they weren't really converted. And what Paul's saying is, look, I was converted, and my life demonstrated that. And that's a defense of the validity of the gospel that's been entrusted to me. Because what does Paul do? He's converted, and he doesn't go to anybody to seek approval from men. He doesn't go to the apostles and say, hey, here I am, guys. Please set hands on me and and set me apart. Jesus has already set Paul apart. He's special. He gets that special place. But listen, Paul now will give between verses 16 and verse 24... He will give like a 14-year history after his conversion. It's a little mini picture of Acts 8 to 14, chapter 8 to 14. Everything you read in Acts 8 to 14, Paul's packing into these verses, and he's going to tell you he went to Arabia, he went back to Damascus, he went up to Jerusalem, he saw Peter, he came back down, he went to Syria and Cilicia. But notice what he says in verse 22. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing... He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, post-conversion, I went out, I preached the gospel, I planted churches, I preached the gospel, I planted churches, I preached the gospel, I planted churches, and then I came to Jerusalem where the church had begun, right? In Pentecost, the church, the New Covenant church started there in Jerusalem, and I came there to that first place where the Jews still lived and the Judaizers were, and and they, they received me. They knew I was a persecutor. They were afraid of me. They didn't know what to do with me. But you know what? They received me. And what Paul is saying is, look, my life, my ministry reflected that I really was the real thing. And in reflecting that I really was the real thing, I reflected that the gospel really was the real thing. And the brothers received me and the apostles received me, not because I went to them for approbation, but because I am who I am by the grace of God. Now, that's important. That's important because... Again, our faith is built on the word of God, much of which the Apostle Paul wrote. It's built on the gospel that Paul is going to defend. Um, It's built on the objective truth of Scripture. And yet, 
we, like Paul, have to, to some extent, have an experience. You have to have an experience. A lot of people shy away from that. I'm not saying you have to have an Apostle Paul conversion. You must be converted. You must undergo transformation, whether you're 6 or 65. You must be born again. You must experience Christ being revealed within you, and your life must demonstrate that. And when it happens, when it happens, you will be defending the gospel, even as Paul was. You will be saying, I have myriads of old friends who knew me before I was converted, knew how wicked I was, knew how rebellious I was. I don't talk to any of them. They're on Facebook. They see what I post. They see what I write. They have to know. They have to know something happened to me, something supernatural. They have to. Because it wasn't me. And I never would have become that person. And Paul's saying, look, the true gospel is defended by what happened to me, by the revelation of Jesus to me, that's now recorded in Scripture for your faith. I just want to say to you, we have, we have a great battle for our souls. We have a great battle for our souls. I think sometimes we're unaware of that. Sometimes we think, I don't have a battle for my soul. I'd never deny the gospel. I'd never buy into Judaism. I'd never be self-righteous. I'd never be a Pharisee. I'd never do this. I'd never do that. I'm, I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. We have a battle for our souls. The devil hates the gospel that Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, accomplishes everything for you. He hates that. We must vigorously defend for it. We must make sure our lives have been transformed by it. And we must live in a manner worthy of it because it is the gospel of the grace of God that saves and frees and delivers sinners and gives eternal life. And we're in a battle for our own souls. Listen, I, I want to just press that. If you don't think you're in a battle for your soul, please come to me. I will pray for you. I will pray with you. I'm not Baptist, but I'll pray with you. We'll go pray. You come to me. We are in a battle for our souls. We must Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ who has been revealed in us, sovereignly, from eternity, in the plan of God, through the free grace that is preached in the gospel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you did in the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for taking such a murderous, blasphemous, wicked, hell-deserving man like Paul and making him into the great defender of the gospel. Father, thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for our own conversions by your grace. Again, we pray if there are any here who have not been born of your spirit, that, that Father, you would today reveal your Son in them, even if you have set them apart from birth. We pray that you would reveal Christ in us, Father. Lord Jesus, come and dwell in us. Give us grace to, to treat one another as those who have you dwelling in us, to defend the gospel by the power of your Spirit within us. Lord Jesus, forgive us for being careless in our own study of your word and defense of the gospel. We pray that you would build us up by your grace and establish us in Christ, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.